You're listening to Season 3 of Song Chronicles. And in today's episode, my guest is Billy Valentine, who recorded a wonderful new record, Billy Valentine and the Universal Truth. It's the first release for the relaunch of Flying Dutchman Records. Billy grew up in West Virginia as one of 13 kids and had his first paying gig when he was 15. He shares stories from his long career, like being part of the original road company of The Wiz, forming the Valentine Brothers with his brother John, recording demos for Burt Backrack and Hal David, and singing on soundtracks of shows like Boston Legal. Songs he wrote with his writing partners, Bob Thiel Jr. and Phil Roy, were recorded by artists like the Neville Brothers, Pops and Mavis Staples, and Bonnie Raitt. In this episode, we talk about what it was like to have his hero, Ray Charles, record a song he wrote, the importance of protest music, and feeling comfortable in your own skin as an artist. Please welcome Billy Valentine. It's great to see you. It's good to be with you. I am very grateful you sent me your new record. I was just blown away. It was such a pleasure. It sounded like you did a lot of it live. Did you record it live? Yeah. yeah. The basic tracks were done over at East West. Ocean Way over there? Yes, where the Beach Boys were. Yeah. So Bob Field Jr. had an idea about reviving his father's label from the 60s called Flying Dutchman. And he recorded Gil Scott Heron, mm-hmm. Leon Thomas. He even done a record, a spoken word on Angela Davis and a lot of protest songs. Quite honestly, recording this record during the pandemic and the George Floyd thing felt like we were back in the 60s and all of that. So it was a very dark period when we did the record. But we did it over there. We did it during the pandemic. And fortunately, we were able to get these wonderful musicians, uh, Larry Golding and Peter Palatino, just a bunch of great guys together. Fantastic. All of the songs we like to think speaks to truth. Like the first song, it is called uh, We the People Who Are Darker Than Blue. It's Curtis Mayfield wrote this song and it was out in the 60s. And it spoke to me, it spoke to Bob as well. So we thought we'd record it. We people who are darker than blue. Are we gonna stand around this town And let what others say come true We're just good for nothing They all figure A boy has grown up shiftless jigger Now we can't hardly stand for that That along with several other tunes that have been recorded on the Flying Dutchman label Gil Scott Heron's Home is Where the Hatred Is which is a song about a uh, junkie who can't kick the habit. I left three days ago, but no one seems to know I'm gone. Home is where the hatred is, 
Then there's Eddie Kendrick's tune called My People. Yeah, I wanted to ask in your version of them, the way that you delivered them, you owned it so much that I thought that they were your tunes. Thank you. I like to feel that way. I think that, you know, I was a huge Ray Charles fan, and that's who I studied. I, I feel like I studied under Ray, you know, because I always loved the way he made a song his own. Once he put his stamp on it, it was his song. And um, I, I think I'm at a time in my life where I'm starting to feel good about myself. You know, it takes a long time to get to that point where you're really confident and really feel secure within your own skin. And uh, I'm feeling that more and more all the time, especially with these songs. I was able to to inject myself into them. And they, Louise, they were so heartbreakingly sad songs that once we were done with the project, I put the record down and I could not touch it. I didn't pick it up for like eight, eight or nine months. And the only reason I did them was because Bob had decided it's time to go perform it, go do some of these songs live. And once I got back to those songs, I realized what I had done. I mean, it was such a depressing period that I didn't want to hear myself doing it. I didn't want to hear those songs. But once I had to get back into them, now I appreciate more than ever what I did to them, what I did with them. And that's that's saying a lot from an artist, because, you know, Louise, we're the hardest person to please about ourselves. We, we critique ourselves to death. But listening to them now, I like what I did. It's an interesting thing because I've been making a record over the last year and engineering a lot of it, sending tracks out to people. And it is a thing of our times. Well, a lot of people are going back out and the pandemic is over for most of the world, at least psychologically for a lot of people. They feel like, yeah, things are back. However, this extended period of time of a, a lot of people working from home and and less getting people in the room to do a studio date like you did. It is hard as an artist to get a sense of what you're accomplishing. The fact that you went to perform it, oftentimes it becomes so much more fluid. Like, I didn't know the song then. Now I know the song. Did you feel any of that? Or did you feel like, I don't want to touch this. I love it the way it is. Since I performed it, I'm more comfortable with it now. And of course, yes, I think I would love to do some things over. I would love to, <laughs> you know, a few things here and there. Certainly I'm feeling it more now. But that's the beauty of performing, that I can seriously make this my own. This is really mine now that I can even take my time even more so. That's what that was for me mm -hmm. this past Saturday night. So tell me about Saturday night. Um, I had never heard of a Nichols Canyon, the whole venue set up or anything. And Bob Thiel set it up. And I was able to get the musicians who, who played on the record to, to do it with me, which was just fantastic, getting Larry Golding and these guys together. So I get there on Friday for a rehearsal, and everything just immediately gelled. These guys came. And we were, it was almost, it felt improvisation. It was just so cool and laid back. And after I had left that rehearsal on Friday, I felt very confident about coming into this thing on Saturday night. But what I didn't know was that, what a, what a fantastic crowd. What a fantastic setup. What is the venue? 
Well, the venue is uh, this gentleman, his name is Peter Hastings, and it, his place is called Nicholas Canyon, Nicholas Canyon Music. You can pull it up on Instagram or something like that. What you saw was coming from that. He does, apparently he's been doing these concerts for years. He say he doesn't do them that often anymore. He just does the ones he wants to do. And after visiting the website, I, I found how eclectic the groups were that were working there. It could be a, a string quartet. It could be anything, you know. It, it was just amazing. And it's uh, pretty hip. I mean, the, the crowd was young and old, very eclectic, you know. And what a, a great listening audience also. What a joy it was. It's beautiful. It was just amazing. I, I, maybe one of the best concerts I've had in a long time. That's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful feeling to feel like you can connect with an audience and you've been doing this so long and you've been performing so long. It must have felt amazing to do these songs and your record for for an intimate crowd. It was especially uh, cool because I only had eight songs to do originally. It's an eight song record. I added a, a couple of things like a, a change is gonna come because I felt that that worked within the mix of the songs that we were doing. And I'm from West Virginia originally anyway. And I, I, I was born by the river, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's all top notch. The songs, the musicians, you, the history you're pulling into. It's as good as it gets. Well, you know, Louise, I don't know how much you know about me, but you know, I'm one of 13 children. Uh, I didn't know that. I'm one of 13. My mother had one child in a previous marriage who's my half-brother. His name is Alvin. He's no longer with us, but he was the catalyst behind all of this music. Uh, my mother proceeded to have 12 children by my father, and she ended up with seven girls and six boys. I grew up with music in the house. You know how that is when yeah. you got this just bouncing off the walls, you know. And Alvin was a fantastic B3 organist and singer, but he was a, he was a well-rounded uh, uh, entertainer. Alvin was very funny. He, he conversed from the bandstand uh, very efficiently. He, he sang. He was my idol, you know. He's the one that zoomed me in on Ray Charles. He said, you listen to this and you'll be fine, you know. Alvin was the guy. That, and so my parents recognized that we had talent. And my father ended up investing in a nightclub in Columbus, Ohio. And we pretty much became nightclub owners in Columbus, Ohio. We've been performing all of our lives in, in clubs, pretty much. I started at 15. That's an extraordinary gift from your parents. That is something to empower you all like that. Well, I think my dad, my dad really wanted me to go to college, but he saw that I was not, you know, that I was going in that direction of the music and he had to go with it because he saw, he saw the potential. He saw how the other club owners were asking us to work at their clubs. And, and he, he got wise to, to what was going on. My dad was pretty smart. You know, he started out as a coal miner, but he got smart even then and bought him a truck and started hauling the coal. So he was very, uh, very... Uh, Upwardly mobile. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. But that's, that's pretty much my life, you know. Uh, out of 13, there's still 11 of us still around, you know. What was the professional name that Alvin performed under? Alvin Valentine. So you all used Valentine. We all used Valentine. And I'll tell you, uh, my parents' side of the family are Valentines. Her maiden name is Mabel Valentine. 
And when Alvin's father passed away, he came to live with us. And he and my father didn't get along very well, to be quite honest. So my grandparents adopted Alvin when he was a child, when he was young. So his name originally was Alvin Ford. So he became Alvin Valentine. Mm -hmm. And because he mentored me, I became Billy Valentine. Because I worked with him, I went with the Valentine name. My father's last name was Denham. And uh, that's my surname. D-E-N-H-A-M. It looks like Denham, but it's pronounced Denham. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like the genes. (laughs) Yes, yes. Yeah. So what about your brother, John? You were in a band with him and you made four albums. We did four albums. The most successful being the Money's Too Tight album, which was called The Valentine Brothers' First Take. And we, we did all of our vocals in the first take, but then we tried to beat them and we couldn't beat them. So we ended up naming the, naming the album first take. And Money's Too Tight came off of that album. That was actually our second album mm-hmm. and, our, and our most successful because it, and it was done on an independent label and it went over to England as an import. And then there was this young man spinning that record up in Manchester, England. And his name was Mick Hunkwell. And he had aspirations uh, of doing a record. Uh, that was one of the first songs he recorded in 1986. Simply Red? Simply Red. Mm-hmm. And uh, it became a number one record for them all over Europe. Uh, That's amazing. But- and I remember that record. I remember Simply Red's version of it. I thought they'd written it. It's a really cool song. Well, you know, that came out of some real stuff because John and I had been, you know, we were both in the Wiz. The National Touring Company of the Wiz. For like three years, right? Three years. And it it started here in L.A. So it ended in 79. Mm -hmm. And that's when we started writing for this album. And the first song was, you know, I've been laid off from work. My rent is due. My kids all need brand new shoes. So that became the catalyst, you know, having just been laid off from the whiz, it, it came out of a real place. And it became a pretty cool, pretty cool anthem for us because they used that during uh, Bill Clinton's run up to, to the presidency. Really? Democratic, DNC, Democratic National Committee used that as a sort of a theme thing, you know. Interesting. And so you were singing a lot of, it was a lot of Luther Van Draw songs in the whiz, right? Luther wrote the rejoicing song. The big number after the uh, after they do away with the wicked witch of the West and can you feel a brand new day was was Luther's song and, and you know that was his contribution to the, to the show. I see. And then you did the theme for Boston Legal as well with yeah. the young, young yeah. looking James Spader. <laughs> yeah. Um, nobody ever knew who I was because I I didn't get no credit for that. And I, wasn't really that didn't mean any, a lot to me at that time so Danny Lux who was the music guy on that show called me and said hey man you want to come out and give this song a try that I'm doing for a, a new series and maybe I think you can land this one and so I went out there and he had a guitar lick on there and he said maybe you can kind of mess around with that you know and so what I did was sort of like a George Benson thing you know I just yeah. went oh oh and did some ad libs under that. All right now, come on, y'all. You know, kind of stuff like that. Yeah. And they they loved it. So they actually had me work every episode. I became a, like that little background. 
I'm saying, when they break for commercial, when they come back in from commercial and stuff like that. Great experience. Yeah. I want to go back. The, the song, The Creator. Oh, yeah. I want to ask you about the background of the song, but the performance of it is so interesting to me because it either sounds to me like you sung the vocal a cappella first and then the band found their way around you, or you're just doing this absolute, I am going to control the pace and phrasing of this song no matter what the cats are playing. It's really, it's a masterful performance. Tell me about the song and its background and also the recording of it. Well, I just listened, I basically version of it and it's almost like it was meditational for me. It was like an out-of-body experience. Yeah, yeah, well, of, it felt right at home. I, I could take all the time I wanted with this and it really just let myself go and be and be me. And the guys just they meld with me just like they did on my performance, you know. I guess it was quite a while after I recorded the creator that I found myself. Wow, that, that made me really feel good about the time when peace was on the earth and joy and happiness did reign and each man knew his worth in my heart how I that spirit's return And I cry As time flies That was Larry and Pino? That was Larry and Pino, yeah. Now, Bob Jr. took the creator, uh, he took a few of these songs to New York, Louise, and he put some other people on. And there's a couple of ladies. I wasn't even there for this overdubbing of bass. There's an Asian lady. There's a very up and coming bass player out of New York. She played on the creator because she had a. Um, it wasn't Pino playing bass on that. Pino might have did the original track, but Bob had some other people overdub. I can't tell you exactly everything that what, what went down in New York, but there, there's a baritone saxophone player on one of the tunes also. That's a female too, a baritone sax player. Mm -hmm. So I haven't gotten my cover <laughs> with all the credits on it, but uh, it's all there, you know. Bob can set you straight on. He took this stuff to New York and I, I was amazed at what he did because it really put everything right in pocket. He's got that gene like his father, you know, just like you and your mother. I'm telling you, the guy's got ears, man. He's got ears that are huge. Well, thank you. And yes, he does. And God bless him for doing this for your record. You know, we go back 35, 40 years. Bob and I have written songs together, too. We, the Neville Brothers cut about four or five of our songs. Mm -hmm. uh, Ray Charles did a cover of one of our songs. Your hero. Yeah, my hero. I got to tell you, that was a that was a shocker. I actually helped on that record, and I never met Ray, and I didn't have to meet Ray. I felt like I already knew Ray because I'd studied Ray so much. And sometimes it's best you don't meet your heroes. You know what I mean? Because that record was produced by Richard Perry. It was done in, in the studio and, and at that time, which was like the early 90s. And Ray was recording all of his vocals at home. And then mm -hmm. they would send the tapes back to the recording studio. 
but I helped put the background vocals on that song, uh, the name of the song. It was called My World. And it became the title of his album, Ray Charles, My World. And I just couldn't believe that happened to me. I still can't believe that happened. You get those pinch me moments. <laughs> I mean, that's the greatest thing I could have ever, that's, I, I could have ever wished for. And I had no idea that could happen. It just happened. Let me go back and, because I'm fascinated with the creative process and a way back, you said, it takes a long time to be comfortable in your own skin and feel confident about what you're doing. And can you tell me a little bit about that process? Was it just that you made this record, which you really felt was pure and expressed your soul? Or were there things that happened before that, that led you to do that? And, and for somebody who's listening, who might be struggling, struggling with self-doubt and wants to know how they find their true center in their creativity, what guidance or advice would you give someone like that? Well, you get up every day and you do the work that you, because you have to have a belief in yourself that there's something really special going on here. And it's coming from something bigger than me. Mm -hmm. That's my belief. I've been at this so long and I've always done the work and it's always, uh, been worth every moment that I have put into it because every time I've, I've done uh, off an adventure, whether it be even my many years of demo singing, they were filled with with little little messages that I was supposed to just keep on keeping on. You know, you just keep doing the work. So going into this, it's just at that part of the journey where I found myself. I found that I could do this on my own terms and do this. This is the Billy Valentine way, right? And, mm -hmm. and uh, if that answered your question, I hope so. Yeah, doing it every day, the whole thing about it's bigger than you is really important. And I love the mantra, there's something special going on. Something's, something's going on here. I mean, if you're not famous and I'm not famous, you got to be doing something special to have a career at my age in this world today. You know what I mean? Something tells me that I'm still doing it because my work is not done yet. And you're an ageless man. It's hard to put an age on you. I don't even know your age. You know, I think music keeps musicians going. And I know sometimes if I tune into Netflix, I'm ready to go to sleep. If I'm doing music, I could be up all night. There is an energizing when you're part of creating and self-expression and speaking your mind. And you definitely look like someone who is benefiting from all of those endeavors. I do believe I am. I always think my heart is young. I have a young heart. I, I'm happy most of the time. I'm rarely ever sad. I can't think of any times when I'm sad because I'm so hopeful. I'm a really hopeful person. And I think that's what I'm spreading is hope. It's a, it's a hope thing, you know, share it. And to bring joy in somebody's life for a moment, it's, it's huge. Mm -hmm. That's why we do this, you know. We love what we do. To see somebody light up like that. Yeah, it is It is a gift. It's a gift. And I don't ever forget that. Yeah, we can never forget that it is a gift. And there is that thing. You got to use it not to lose it. Right. You can lose it if you don't use it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I saw that you were um, profoundly influenced also, aside from Alvin and Ray Charles, but you were also influenced by Otis Redding, Nat King Cole, and Carmen McRae. Can you yeah. tell me the first time you heard Carmen McRae and what your favorite 
record was and why that affected you? Well, I got to hang out with Carmen. My first wife and Carmen were very good friends. So I got to spend some real time with her at our home, attended a few parties with her at her home. I even went down to concert policy with her a couple of times to hear her. And, you know, she was the ultimate Fraser, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of the female Sinatras, the, the male guy. But Carmen was just fantastic. Uh, I also saw Otis when I was 15. Alvin took me to see Otis Redding in, in Columbus, Ohio, and it was in a ballroom, and you could only get 600 people in there. And this was, even before the Barcades, he had his other band, which was a fabulous band, too. And, mm. and that really opened my eyes there. The Barcades? Yeah, the Barcades eventually became Otis's band. And they went down and they went down in the plane with Otis in Wisconsin. But there, I saw the other band that was there before before the Barcades became his band. I mean, this was, this was in 60, 65, 64, 65. And he was just, he was well on his way to becoming a millionaire. He had not become a millionaire just yet, but he was well on his way. And that was a big deal back then. I mean, he had, he had bought this plane that because he was making these short hops, man. And he, if he had a plane, you know, that's how it all came about, you know, him flying in the dead of winter across the Great Lakes of Wisconsin, and it went down over there. But I saw him in Columbus, and it was like a hurricane, baby. It was like he, it was a freight train running down the track, and uh, he came on, and it was 45 minutes to an hour of pure soul, uh, like you never heard before. At 15, that was something, that was, that was a, adult music. That's, that's exciting. Yeah. And Nat King Cole? Actually, I loved Nat's voice. But it wasn't until I came to California, which was in my, in my 20s, that I started getting into Nat and how smooth he was, you know. And I was doing a lot of uh, casuals and weddings and things. And then I started singing that stuff, man. And I, I just fell in love with him, you know. Everybody wanted to hear some Nat King Cole. Sinatra and stuff like that. So I, I got into the Great American Songbook also when I became friends with Parm. Yeah, the creator, again, the phrasing in there, it feels like there's Sinatra, Nat King Cole influences in your phrasing where you'd wait to the last moment to say it. It's like the equivalent of there's a thing that happens in film where someone can get the camera to close up on them yeah. by waiting to say the line, you know? Marlon Brando was the king of get the close up where he'd wait. And, and to me, Frank Sinatra would do it with phrasing and Marlon Brando would do it with the camera. It feels like you're doing that in that particular record. And also Bob Thiel put it together in such a way that he helped that shine. And that's also fun, the connection with Bob, with Nat King Cole and What a Wonderful World and his dad writing that song and that song was a sleeper song it was it was on a soundtrack or something and then suddenly mm -hmm. it was a classic it's amazing good morning vietnam was that the one good that morning vietnam yeah with robin williams so tell me what it was like growing up in a house with 13 kids it was west virginia like what was your house like what was the environment that that's a lot of kids running around and you know well, where'd you all sleep <laughs> up the top down on the bottom in west virginia you know we were very poor down there but we had no idea we were poor but you know my family was such a welcoming family our door was always open to to the kids in the neighborhood even down in west virginia where i spent the first 10 years of my life and 
you know, my first experience with singing on a stage was probably in the third grade, fourth grade mm -hmm. uh, in my elementary school. My sister played piano for me. I sang a song and I think it was my third grade teacher who just thought the world of me and gave me a sense of self or something. You know, she made me feel like I was special. Maybe it was something I was lacking at home, but boy, the attention she gave me, it's, it stays with me to this day. Uh, how I wished I could tell her how much she meant to me. You know, you don't find out until you're much, much further on down the road uh, who was that most important person who gave you uh, a bit of knowledge or strength to make you think that you can do anything you put your mind to. And Miss Hillard was that person. You were very fortunate to have a teacher like that. Yeah, well, you know, I think that's what teachers do. And I think in this world, when they're great teachers, you know. Yeah, at their best, that's a wonderful job. I hear it all the time, you know, how teachers save kids, you know, that's just what they do. Believing in somebody can save a person. Yeah. So when you were young, you sung with the Young Hope Unlimited. Oh, yeah. And I went back and listened to Soulful Strut and Young and Hopeful. It's a take on the Young Holt, Holtful, which are just instrumental tracks. You weren't on those, but I thought, oh, that band, I know these songs don't know you know them or you don't know who did them, but they're so famous, those tracks. Da -da 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 -da. Mm -hmm. We traveled around the country on Soulful Strut. I did a couple of years with the guys and I met them in Pittsburgh. They were playing at a club called Walt Harper's Attic and it was on Market Street. And that's where all the Pittsburgh pirates and everybody went to hang out for dinner and stuff. You know, it's a beautiful supper club. And I auditioned for these guys there that night. And I had to go up, I had to go up cold, no rehearsal, nothing, nothing like that. So we they had a great pianist, Bobby Lyle. Uh, so I was able to find a couple of songs that we had in common. And they loved what I did. And they took me on the road, took me down to Mississippi and all over the Midwest and Canada. Red and LD are, I still talk to Red, who's still alive. Red is 90 years old. He's in Chicago. As you know, Young and Hope were two-thirds of the original Ramsey Lewis trio. That's who they are. I see. And when they split with Ramsey, uh, one of the Shylocks, the group the Shylocks, wrote Soulful Strut. Marshall something, something like that. Anyway, they wrote that, and that was Red and LD's hit coming off of uh, Ramsey Lewis's trio. Mm. And going down to Mississippi with those guys was a huge moment because we're talking 71. And the reason we went down there, because Red is from Greenville, Mississippi, and Charles Evers was running for governor. And Charles Evers is the brother of Medgar Evers. You might have heard of that name. He has a place in Hitchie. He was murdered down there in Mississippi uh, back in the day. You know, when we went down to Jackson to sing it, play at his inaugural ball in 71. And um, we got to play at a couple of colleges down there while we were there. But that was a scary and I thought was a, a very important trip just for my education, just being down there during that period. Were police coming in? Were you, you know, worried about protesters getting... I was worried about being Black and being on the road and being stopped. Here was three, four Black guys in a van, you know. Uh, people were going to the polls and they were coming up missing, you understand? Uh, anything could happen down there during that time. First time I ever saw cotton. It was, and I had heard of some of the things 
going on down there during that period, even though I was very young, you know. But yeah, that was a that was a very important time. How did you make it through? We were just very careful and we went about our business and we had a great time. The hospitality was just fantastic. You know, even the day of voting after everything was said and done, you know, we had fabulous meals and, and just moved on to what we we're gonna do next, you know. Was it one venue that you played or was it a couple? We played at the Mississippi Valley State College, went over there and did a job, went down into Hattiesburg, did some radio down there. And I think that was about it down there, about three or four jobs. Do you think around that time is when you started to feel a need to put protest in your songs and speak up about some of the things going on in American culture in the South? I think I did. I think I always felt a song with a message was, I loved being able to sing a song that says something. You know, I thought money is too tight said something. That was just an inkling of what could be done, you know. Uh, but I do think that I was brought up in Ohio and Kent State was at the center of, of the Vietnam War protests and uh, where they were killing students, you know. So, yeah, it, it's always been there. Gil Scott Heron's songs were like anthems in my neighborhood, you know, uh, when the revolution comes, you know. There'd be no television, you know. <laughs> Uh, home is where the hatred is. I mean, those things were pertinent songs, man. Donnie Hathaway was an important person in my life. Musically or personally? I opened a show for Donnie. I wasn't a friend, but I was a big time fan of Donnie's. You know, his things were so deep, man. Thank you, Master, for my soul and things like that, man. That was like getting into a, a, the church thing that, that was so relevant. You could speak to truth, you know. Yeah. Everything is everything. Yeah, so tell me about the title of the album. Billy Valentine and the Universal Truth. Well, I thought it fit with what we were doing, what we were saying. Of course, there was another wonderful idea that Bob Field came up with, and I went with it. It speaks to what we're talking about. I think that's probably why I'm here today. That's why I'm still doing what I'm doing, is that mm -hmm. I can tell the truth, and I can not worry about it. I, I don't have to hold that back. Not worried about being judged. Exactly. So I just want to ask you, it's a little uh, footnote, but you had a voice character in Robert Townsend's film, The Five Heartbeats. Yeah, Eddie King. Yeah. Did you work with Robert Townsend? Yes, Robert. Robert Townsend found out about me through John McClain, who was an A&R guy over at A&M Records, where I and John and, and myself, my brother John and I had done a record over there. And Robert was looking for talent. He was looking for guys to do this whole kind of a temptation thing, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, that's It was based on a group like the Temps because yeah. every guy in there could sing, you know? Every guy in the Temptations could sing. But he needed a character like a David Ruffin type. And for some reason, he knew I was the guy because there were some really fine singers at that audition. Everybody that was in L.A. I thought might have auditioned for that piece. And, I got it, and I got it, and it was a fun, because we were working in the studio as they were filming, and we would send these cuts down when they needed it for the next scene. Were they working in the soundstage at AM Studios? No, they were, they were downtown at uh -huh. a theater down there near the Third Street Market. There's a theater, the Majestic or something like that, a big movie house, mm -hmm. and that's why they shot that scene where he slides in and holding that note, and they're on stage waiting for him. He comes in late. Well, they shot a lot of stuff down there. 
and they would shoot these tracks down there. We were cutting them over on Sunset over there with Steve Tyrell at his studio. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Steve was a producer on that uh, soundtrack. Is that how you met Steve? Because I know you and my dad and Steve did a lot of demos together, right? That's how I got to know Steve. Yeah. But yeah, that was how I got to know Steve. I had done some other stuff over there with Cynthia and Cynthia Real and Barry over there. But when I got to Five Heartbeats, I got to know Steve my dad, you know. Because, you know, the guys that were singing with me were the guys that went out on tour with Michael Jackson. It was all those background singers he had. Their voices was as good as those guys at The Temptations. They were fantastic. That's great. So I know my dad worked with you a lot, and I know you were one of his favorite go-tos when he'd write a song and wanted a male vocalist on it. And you worked with Burt Backrack and Hal David on things? Yeah, I worked with Hal on occasion without Burt, but I did a lot of stuff with Burt and my good friend Tony Okay. And, you know, your dad, wow. I was I was becoming a very popular demo singer. I was singing for everybody. I was singing for a lot of Warner Chapel people, famous music people, and, you know, Almore Irvin, everybody. And, and every now and then I got on with Jerry, would go over to Ted Perlman's house. And, I mean, Jerry worked me a lot. I mean, uh, I did a lot of songs for him, and it was opening my head up to a lot of different things is what it was. Elysian Fields was one of them, I recall. Oh, um, yeah, which you recorded on his Backroom Blood record. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you have cassettes in your closet of the demos that you did with him? I do. I probably do, but, I, you know, I haven't been in them in a long time. I got stuff out there, you know. This is uh, something that I've been talking to recording engineers about lately. The fact that so many musicians have historic, important, great things in the closet on different formats like cassettes. And the inaccessibility and affordability of digitizing them makes them disappear. And, you know, raising the question, what can we do to make digitizing these, you know, they're historic, mm -hmm. easier so mm -hmm. that people don't keep them in a box. I've had cassettes in my attic for years. It's the one thing that I never threw out. Cassette versions of live shows, rehearsals, demos. I have dats. I have Porta Studios. I have multi-tracks. And, you know, what are we going to do with all this stuff? But I found a song unlabeled on a cassette. One of my favorite songs. You know, it only existed on that cassette. I forgot I wrote it. And I found it just by getting a cassette machine and being curious. So I bet there's an album of ideas and songs that are hiding in that box somewhere. <laughs> I don't doubt you one bit. <laughs> it's just getting into that box, you know, and sorting through that stuff. Have you done it? I did one round of it. I don't want a really high res version crappy cassette. I just want to hear the idea. <laughs> I hate to break the stop. I'm having such a good time. But I've got some tree people out they're waiting for me to pay them. I understand. Well, uh, it's been great. Tree trimmers, you know. Yeah. They did a nice job on my backyard. I got to go pay them off. We did great. Thank you, Louisa. You're a friend of mine. Thank you, Billy, for sharing your heart and your stories. Join us next time for an interview with Dave Davies. He's the co-founder and lead guitarist for The Kinks, regarded as one of the most influential English rock bands, inspiring countless other bands. Listeners may recognize this riff. I'm thrilled to talk with Dave about his wonderful autobiography and the album that goes with it, which are both called Living on a Thin Line. 
and to hear the story behind the song 21st Century, which he wrote with my dad in an L.A. coffee shop. Dave is an absolute legend who has seen it all from the heyday of rock and roll, and our conversation is not to be missed. You've been listening to Song Chronicles. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please write us a review. We love to hear from you. I'm your host and producer, Louise Goffin.